Awesome. Thank you. Thanks, Mary, for sharing with us today. Um, for Mary, it was um, Knowing You, the song that spoke to her heart. Can you do this for a second? Can you think about, uh, in your mind, uh, what's the song that's kind of been grooving in your heart? Like, what's the song that you've been, you've been holding on to? It doesn't have to be a Christian song, maybe, but can you just think of and share uh, with the person next to you, what's a song that's been speaking your mind, your heart these days? And if you're online, you can write that in the chat box. That'd be awesome. But just take maybe uh, 15 seconds to share uh, what's that song in your life uh, with the person or the persons next to you? some murmuring as we consider what those songs are. Um, songs are important for, uh, not only for us, but they're important for um, a culture, for a society. They're, they're important for a nation. Um, songs are important for um, a group of people like us because there's a couple roles that the music of a particular group plays in that group's mindset. One, it has a way of reflecting um, and expressing our hearts. So, if the songs that are popular in our day are about love, then it means that love is in the heart of those people, right? If the songs are talking about money, then it's usually expressing the ideal and the value that money has in that culture, in that community. If the songs like in the 60s, in the post-war generation, after Vietnam and after, you know, wearied by wars in Korea and World War II, all those things, uh, the songs were about peace. John Lennon writing, singing about peace. When the songs were about peace, it's because it's expressing that as a desire of our hearts. That's what music does. It expresses the heartbeat and the mindset of a group of people who are singing those songs. But the other thing that music does is not only does it express it, it has a way of shaping the hearts and shaping the minds of a group of people. And so if we sing the, uh, the, the same songs enough times over a certain period of weeks, that will begin to impress itself upon you and it will begin to shape your mind. As you listen to the radio, if all the songs you're listening to are about violence, then it's going to shape your heart to become more and more violent. If all the songs you're listening to are about money, it's because money will eventually be on the mind of the people who are hearing or singing those songs. When it comes to the church then, what we sing is important. Right? What we sing is important because not only is it an expression of where we are, it has a way of shaping the souls, our collective soul, and bringing that before the Lord God. And in the midst of the pandemic, we've been singing a lot of songs, not only here at, uh, at a Harvest, but throughout the world, the church has been singing songs. And um, there's a uh, licensing organization that keeps track of what songs are sung by the church on any given Sunday. There's a couple groups like that. And I was reading um, this, this news article that came across my, my email. What were the songs that were being sung the most during the pandemic? What were the themes? What were the words? What were the ideas that were being expressed the most as a way of expressing our hearts, but as a way of shaping the mindset of the church? There were two parallel tracks that ran alongside of each other, number one and number one A and one B, just running down consistently together throughout the pandemic. On one side, there was language of fear and darkness and struggle. These were the songs being brought out, sung in the church. I'm afraid, it's dark, it's a struggle. But running right alongside that were similar words uh, were different words, but in a similar, uh, sim similar uh, popularity, if you will, of faith and trust and hope 
and joy. In the midst of the pandemic, what was happening is that no one was glossing over the reality that things are hard and that things are rough and things are difficult and it seems like it's dark in here. Nobody was glossing over that fact. They were pressing into the fact that this is where we are. But alongside of that, and maybe overarching that, overriding that, was this deep sense of faith and trust and hope that better days are coming, that a light is going to shine in the midst of the darkness. And we gather because we need to express that, and we gather because we need to be reminded of that. The two most popular songs during the pandemic, number one was, It Is Well With My Soul. Though everything is falling apart, this song was written, a man named Horatio Bliss, who um, wrote that song as he was going on a boat to see the wreckage where his wife and his children had drowned in a boat accident. As he was going there, he wrote, It Is Well With My Soul. The second song, most popular song throughout the pandemic was called, Great Is Thy Faithfulness. Morning by morning in the midst of the storm, (laughs) new mercies I see. We needed to be reminded that though the times are dark and the situation is rough and the storms are real, that there's an anchor in the midst of it. One of the songs that may be more familiar to us is a song that says, Oh no, you never let go through the storm and in every high and every low, low. Oh no, you never let go. You never let go of me. That was a popular song before, but during the pandemic, it was sung 102% more than it was pre-pandemic because it was illustrating the fact that through the highs, you're not going to let go of me, but through the lows, you're not going to let go of me either. Why were these songs so often sung on the lips of the church? Because we needed to know that we're not denying the struggle but we're not denying the faithfulness of God in the midst of it either. We're not ignoring the storm and saying it's sunny out, but we're not going to forget the fact that there's a God who's faithful and that the sun will come out tomorrow as it has every day since he breathed this world into existence. That's our God, faithful in the midst of the storms. We have been in this series on on pandemic proofing our faith. What does that look like? What does that mean? Here, for the first four weeks, we talked about, for the first few weeks, we talked about what does it mean for us to build a foundation deep into the ground for us to be able to endure the storms? We looked at spiritual disciplines that would strengthen us for when storms come. Then we looked at two particular storms in the life of Jesus and his disciples to see how Jesus shows up and to learn about what we need to do in the midst of the storm. We're going to conclude this all next week, but today what I want to do is I want to drill deep into the bedrock of our lives and place a foundation. Where is God? What is God thinking? What is God's position? What is his mindset? What is his heart? What is his posture? As you and I go through the storms of life, as we go through the difficulties of life, what are God's thoughts as we relate to the day-to-day challenges, as well as the storms that arise in our lives. We're going to read from Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. Romans is arguably um, the magnum opus of the gospel. It's the high point. It is the mountaintop, the clearest explanation of the good news of Jesus Christ, of certain major theological Ideas like justification and sanctification and glorification are found here in fullest measure in the book of Romans. And amongst the book of Romans, probably the highest point 
would be considered Romans chapter 8, and in Romans 8, the apex is Romans 8, verses 31 through 39, and this is where we're going to read today. Where is God? What is He doing? Why am I going through the suffering that I'm going through? What is God saying to these things? This is what He says after He spent seven and a half chapters talking about the bad news of our sin, the good news of God saving us, writing to the people of God in Rome who are being heavily and deeply persecuted, whose lives are being taken, whose property is confiscated, whose family members are thrown in jail. How does the gospel relate to your present suffering this day? This is what he says in Romans 8, verse 31. What then shall we say in response to this? To what? To the gospel, to your situation. Here's what I will say. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who is raised to life. He, he's at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, O God, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is God's word. And sometimes I just feel like I just need to read the scripture and, and, and sit down and, and let the word speak for itself. Um, this is one of those passages, man. This is fire to your soul. Holy cow. The only part that's weird about it, verse 36, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Where does that come from? Well, here's where it comes from, and this is why Paul includes it. He's borrowing from Psalm 44, and sometimes when you sing the words to a song, right, you hear the words to a song, whether it be um, a, a paragraph, whether it be a stanza, whether it be just one line from a song, immediately your, your mind begins to drift away into seeing the bigger context of that song, and you begin to feel the emotions. You begin to ask the questions of that song, the context of it. That's what Paul is doing here. Psalm 44 was well known to the Jewish people as one of the dark psalms of the Psalter. Not dark in that there's no hope, but dark in its content. It's a lament. It was written by the people of God in the midst of deep suffering, 
when they're being slaughtered by their enemies, when they're wondering, God, if, if this is happening to us, where are you? Are we no longer your chosen people? Where have you gone? Are you hiding from us? Why are we going through these times? And as Paul lifts the words of Psalm 44 up and places it firmly into Romans 8, he's saying the same question that the people of God in years past asked when they wondered, where are you? I know you're asking the same question in the midst of your trouble, your hardship, your persecution, your famine, your darkness. I know you're asking those questions as much as we're asking those questions today. Maybe not all of us, but some of us. God, as we follow you, it's like we're being led like sheep to be slaughtered. I think about the people of God. I think about the people of faith in persecuted nations. This is literally their story. But for some of you as well, you may be wondering, God, why is it that in their lives this is going on and in this life this is going on and in their lives? We're all people who love you. Why are all of these difficult things happening? Where are you? Why is this going on? What's happening in our midst? And to that question, the Apostle Paul writes, Romans 8, the verses that we read, and it speaks to situations like the ancient Israelites, if they could hear, speaks to the Jews in Rome, and it speaks not only the Jews, but the church in Rome, and it speaks to us today. What is he saying? How does he answer the question of why? Why are we going through all this? Why are the things so difficult? Why are there so much hardships in us? Two thoughts that we'll see here. Here's the first thing. You may never know why. But it's not because God doesn't love you. God, why are these things happening? What's going on? Why am I going through all this stuff? Why so much pain? Why is it, that, why is it never ending? You may never know why. But here's what it's not. Okay, the answer is not because God doesn't love you. In Romans 8, Paul makes that clear. That's actually words uh, borrowed from and, and, and maybe reinterpreted from, uh, from Tim Keller. But whatever reason you're going through it is not because he doesn't love you. One of the first questions um, as a milestone achievement that children begin to ask is a question of why. Right? They, can, they know who, like who is it? Or when are we going there? We're going to go now. They understand that idea. They know where we're going. We're going to the playground. Uh, they know how we're going to get there. We're going to go in the car. But why? The question of why is a difficult question. But when kids begin to a ask that question, it becomes super annoying to their parents. But more than that, it becomes an important milestone because it means that their minds are beginning to understand that there's a world and they're growing into it and they're beginning to figure out the inner workings of this world. And it's a lot more complex and a lot bigger than they initially thought. When kids start asking why, parents, you may be frustrated, but it's also a sign of uh, a reason to rejoice because they're trying to understand how does this world work? What are, the, what, are the, what are the ways, what are the things that control the universe and why are these things the way that they are? Why are vegetables good for me when they taste so bad? They ask questions like that. Why do we have to do it this way? Why do I have to clean my room? The question of why is so important. And um, uh, our, uh, some of you may, be, may, may have this app called Nextdoor where it tracks um, not only your neighborhood but many other neighborhoods around you. There was a conversation on, uh, on the app recently where somebody had posted an article to a crime that had been committed in one of the local neighborhoods. And as the article is written, you know, they were clear who, who did it. They are clear who were the victims. Uh, they were clear when it happened, where it happened at this particular location. But in the, t in the communication thread afterwards, in the replies and the questions, somebody asked, why did this happen? Does anyone know why? 
What were the motives? And people responding, and there are two kinds of people. There's one kind of people saying, it's none of our business. doesn't matter what happened. It's just this is a private matter. We should be sad for the victims and their families as well as for the people who perpetrated this crime. But then others were saying, no, no, no. You understand the question of why makes all the difference in the world. Because if we know their motives, if it was a random thing, then I've got reason to be worried. And I'm afraid because if it happened to them, it could happen to me in my neighborhood. Others are saying, and on the other hand, they're saying, yeah, I, I back that up. Because if it was someone that they knew, then that's one story. But if it's someone that they didn't know, if they just randomly decided that they wanted to pick somebody off, then that's a completely different story. Why did it happen? It's a question that matters of utmost importance. And in the midst of our struggles, trials, problems, difficulties in life, a lot of times in our moments of quietness and honesty, the question we want to ask is why? Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to him? Why is this happening to her? They love you. We love you. I love you so much, God. Why is this happening? And in verses 35 on, uh, Paul writes a bunch of, verses 31 on, Paul writes a bunch of, of, of questions and answers, questions and answers to try and help us to figure out all of these struggles that we're going through. But as you read through the questions, he answers a ton of, uh, five questions, not a ton, five questions, but noticeably absent. It's a question of why. And what Paul does is he says, I'm going to ask these other questions and I'm going to answer them for you so that at the end of the question and answer time, the question of why won't seem to matter as much. In light of who and what he did, why we're going through these things begins to fade into the background. So what is he saying? Verse 31, what shall, what then shall we say in response to all the hardship and trouble problems that you're going through? If God knows you and loves you, here's what he says. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for you, not just who, but what, what challenge? The reason he, he's going to say all these in uh, in, in a personal form of who, is because a lot of times it seems like these are personal attacks, but what Paul is trying to do is show that if the question is who, then let me show you a bigger who. God is the bigger who. The real question is what? What I go through? What am I going through? What am I dealing with? If God is for us, then what can be against us? There's if God is for you, then what challenge, what difficulty that you go through will ever be too much for you to go through? He doesn't say you're not going to face them. He says you will face them, and on many occasions you will face them. You will face death. You will face loss. You will face sorrow. You will face hardship. You will face disappointment. You will face things that you were hoping and dreaming and longing would come true, only to be not true. You'll face unanswered prayers on many an occasion in your life. But he's saying, what shall we say? Listen, if God is for you, then what could ever stand against you? What challenge that you go through will overcome you if God is for you? This is not a blanket promise. Let me be clear here. He's not talking to the general population of 7 billion people on planet Earth. He's talking to his children. He's talking to people who by faith in Christ has said, Jesus, knowing you, there's no greater thing. You are my prize. I have possessed by faith 
what I could never earn, the all-surpassing gift of God's righteousness in my life. That's who this is for. It's for children of God. Okay, that's who these promises are for. And he says, for you, if you're God's child, then he's fighting, for, he's for you. When I, I grew up in, in high school, my youth ministry, there was a, a guy a couple years older than me. His name was Joe. He went to college, and then he, he transferred, ended up transferring to Virginia Tech. I was at Virginia Tech. Um, I was down the road at the University of Virginia, uh, three, two, three hours away. Um, but, you know, we, we always kept in touch with our, our church friends, and we asked how each other are doing. And uh, I was asking somebody, hey, how's Joe doing? What's he up to? And they said, you know what? Joe is always at the gym playing basketball. And I was like, Joe, like, Joe never played basketball. Like, he never played basketball. He's all of a sudden, he's playing basketball. Like, yeah, he's always there. I say, is he good? They're like, no, nah, he's not good. But he, he's got swag. Like, he's confident. Like, he talks so much smack on the basketball court. I was like, Joe, that's crazy. He doesn't talk trash. He doesn't play ball, first of all. Second of all, he doesn't talk trash to anybody. But why does he do that? Like, he's a quiet guy. He's not, you know. But all of a sudden, he's brash and he's confident. Well, they said whenever he goes to the gym, he always goes with Chinung. Right, this guy named Chinung. He's four years older than us. He, what American people called him Jimmy. But when he said, oh, he's with Jimmy, I understood because Jimmy was a character. He was about five foot five, but he was like an eighth degree black belt. Like he was crazy and he was spastic. You know, like there's some calm eighth degree black belts and then there's some like crazy eighth degree black belts, like spastic. Like everything is a reason to fight, right? Taekwondo is about self-defense, right? Everything was offensive to him. So he's always like, I'm going to fight you, shoot. He doesn't say that, but he just started busting out his weapons of mass destruction and started kicking people and punching people and stuff. There's a very famous story um, in Virginia at James Madison High School in Vienna, Virginia. Madison High School is where he went. He was in the, in the gym or in the locker room or something like that, and these people, like, dudes started, like, messing with him because he's 5'5 and he's Asian, and back then, before political correctness, people started making fun of him. And so he said, okay, you're offending me. Here's my self-defense. And he beat up all these people. The story that's told, even when he was in high school, right? You know, as you get older and you go to college and you get old, you tell war stories and they get, you get better and better and better. The older you get, the better you used to be. It wasn't like that. When he was still in high school, the story was that he beat up the entire football team that day. The entire football team, like Cobra Kai on all of them and beat them all up because they were making fun of him because he was Asian. So he was with Joe in the gym, and one day Joe was, he, he's not very good. I think what happened was like he, he made a, he, he shot some like awful shot, and the dudes on his team started messing with him and saying, dude, don't shoot the ball ever. Just pass the ball to us. And he was like, I'm going to keep shooting. Like, that's what we do in basketball. If I'm open, I'm going to shoot it. And then they got mad and started getting physical, and then Chinung came to the rescue, and he took care of business for those guys. And Joe said, listen, I don't care if I'm not good at basketball. I don't know if I can't fight. I'm, I'm not going to throw the first punch ever. I'm not going to throw a punch ever. But Jimmy will do that for me. So whenever he was on the court, like nobody messed with him. Even though he was a bad basketball player, he couldn't fight to save anybody's life. He had some confidence in him because Jimmy was with him. Doesn't mean people are going to stop messing with him, aren't going to push him around. It means I got no reason to be afraid. Paul is saying, you will face opposition in your life. And things are going to come your way. But if God is for you, then you don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be afraid of illness. You don't need to be afraid of death. You don't need to be afraid of economic hardship. 
You don't need to be afraid that somebody's going to walk out on your life. You don't need to be afraid of these things. Because if God is for you, then no opposition, no obstacle that you face is going to be too big for you to go through. This is why we need to know God in our lives, why we need to share the hope of Christ. With, apart from Christ, what hope do we have? Apart from Christ, how would we go through the things that we go through in life? He says, if God is for you, then who can be against you? But then the second question he asks in verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Paul's second question is not only guys, you guys have the, you've got the God of the universe behind you. The one who could eradicate any illness, the one who could speak nothingness into nothingness and create everything. He's for you as a child of God. The second question he asks is, if that great big God gave his son, his one and only, for you, what would he not give to you? What is he saying? He's saying if you pray for anything, God's not stingy. Listen, if God gave you that billion-dollar ring and you say, but God, I'd like to keep it safe until I get home, could you give me the box for it? He's not going to say no. If he gave you the million-dollar shoes, he's not going to withhold the shoelaces from you. He gave his one and only son. Is there anything that he wouldn't give for the objects of his undying affection? That's what he's saying here. You've got everything. You have access to everything that you could possibly need if he gave your, his son. That's a certain and sure sign of that. But I think more than that, this is the anchor that's being placed into the bedrock of our lives as we read this passage. God did not spare his only son, but gave him for you. What does that mean? It means you know the, the, you know the value of an object by how much someone is willing to pay to have that object. What does it mean that God gave his son for you? It means that for Emmeline Lee, it means for Christy Ahn, it means for Chris Lee, that God gave his son for you. This is the value that he places on you. Doesn't matter what anybody else says. Doesn't matter if people call you worthless. People said that you're worthless. People said that you're ugly. People said you're no good. That your net worth in your bank account is nothing. What matters is what God was willing to give for you. A couple years ago, there was kind of making the rounds on, on, on certain social media sites. This one uh, cookware made by a company called Corel. It was the French collection where it had vines and flowers and then it had in cursive these French words, la madeleine or something like that, on these cookware. And because some blogger or some actress or some famous person said, guys, this is the next big thing. This is vintage. It's worth thousands of dollars. That on eBay one actually sold for $10,000. All of a sudden it sent us into a frenzy because many of us who are Asian American, we had these. My parents, I called my mom. I said, Mom, do you have this Corel cookware that I, I, we used to have? It. It's got like green and red, orange, and, and vines on it. And she took a picture. She's like, you mean this one? I was like, that's worth thousands of dollars. You've got to send that to me. I'm going to sell that junk on eBay, and we're going to retire and go on to. 
said, can you just give that to me? That's what I said. All right, I'll give it to you. So I looked on eBay, and there were 50 listings, thousands of dollars. It's like, my goodness, this is amazing. I looked at the sold items list, and there was one that sold for $10,000. Like, you got to be kidding me. I'm going to make bank here. This is amazing. As I was looking more and more, I saw there was more and more of these things being put up on eBay, and they're being put up for like $100, $50. I was like, they must be the fakes. And as I read it, there's like authentic Corel original. I was like, no way. How is it that something that's sold for $10,000 is actually being sold for $100, and people are buying these things up? Why? Well, you learn something on eBay. You learn something in, in everything that comes when it comes to economics. How do you know? That, is it worth 10000 or is it worth $100? How much is that thing worth? Well, it's not what eBay says it's worth. The value of something is only tied to what anybody is willing to pay for that thing. It doesn't matter if it's selling for $10,000. If nobody wants to pay $10,000, it's not worth $10,000. If no one's willing to pay $50 for it, it's not worth $50. It doesn't matter what the book says. Same thing about Kelly Blue Book, same thing about sports cards, same thing about anything that you own. Oh, my gosh, this is worth so much money, and, and they're trying to buy it at a yard sale for $2? doesn't matter how much you think it's worth if nobody's willing to pay for it. Something is only as worth as much as what anybody's willing to to pay for it. How much are you worth? What is the value of your life, of your soul? Doesn't matter the price tag that people of this world put on your life, whether rich or poor, big or small, young or old. Doesn't matter what anybody else says about you. Here's what God says. He says, here's what you're worth. Here's what you're worth to me. You are worth me giving my Son, in order that you might be my beloved child. Do you understand? Like, this, this is crazy. What is the one thing in life you want more than anything else in the world? That dream home, that dream vacation, that dream car, that, that, that dream status symbol. I don't know what, but, but, but what would you pay for that? Would you ever give your child for that? Would you give your son, your only son, for that? Would I give Elijah for anything in this world? Would you give your Matthias, would you give your Ryan or your Christopher, would you give your Emma, would you give anything? For world, what would you give your one and only child in order that you might have that? And if you did, if God forbid you did that, what would people say? Well, they would say you're dumb as a pile of bricks, but they'd also say, you know what, they, really, they must really value that thing. What is the price tag that God puts on your life? Your sinful, broken, messed up life. He said, I give my son for you. You may not understand why you're going through the trials that you go through, but can I tell you what the Word of God makes patently clear? It's not because He doesn't love you. If He gave His Son for you, then what more could He give to show you that He loves you in order that you would become His beloved child? Then verse 33, He says, Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. 
Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died? More than that, who was raised to life. He's at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Here's, here's what he's saying. Guys, you think you blew it, right? Who's the one that would condemn you? You think you're worthless because of those things that you did, and that's why you're going through these things. Who's the one that's going to condemn you? Who's the one that could say you messed up, you done did it now, and you're too far beyond uh, uh, restoration? You've, You've gone too far. Who's it that condemns? He said, the only one who can condemn is God. It's Jesus. The only one who could condemn you has dropped his stone and was nailed to a cross for your forgiveness so that he can now rise up and stand next to the Father and say, hey, you know what? That's mine. He's mine. He's, I've paid for him. You've paid for him. My blood has paid for him, her. And there's no condemnation for them anymore. How good does it feel to know that the only one who can stand as judge and jury of your life is your best friend and your brother? Changes everything. God's not mad at you. That's not why you're going through these problems and trials and hardships. He loves you. That's the baseline. We have a, a, a gentleman in our congregation. His name is Biggie. Biggie works at a wing shop where he makes chicken wings. He's running around in the kitchen back and forth, back and forth. Well, one day, I think he might have been leaving uh, work from wings, and he was driving to get to the next place he had to go, and he was driving a little bit too fast, and a policeman popped him, got him, pulled him over. I don't know how you feel when you get pulled over by a cop, but it's like all the blood drains out of you and it starts beating into your chest and your heart is going to come out of you. It's the worst feeling ever. And so I'd imagine that's what Biggie was feeling as the lights were flashing behind him. And for whatever reason, cops who are athletic and when you see them on cops, they've got their guns raised, they're running as fast as they can. You're like, man, these guys are pretty fast. They walk so super slow as they're walking to your car, gets out of his car. He's got to touch your your trunk for whatever reason. They always do that. And then he walks up and he shines a flashlight at the speeding culprit. And he says, you're the dude who works at Wings. <laughs> Drive safely next time. I'll see you next time I come to eat. How awesome is it when the one who can condemn you actually likes you? That's what Paul is saying about Jesus for you. There's no condemnation. Do you see as he stacks all of these things, you've got the God of the universe that he's fighting for you. He not only is a God of the universe, but he gave his most precious, his son, his only son, in order that you might know how much he loves you. He could condemn you. He could tell you, okay, you squeaked by into heaven by the, by the, by the skin of your teeth. It was a Hail Mary last second. So he doesn't say that. He's like, I'm praying for you right now before the Father. In light of all that, he says, who shall separate us? What can separate us from the love of God? Shall it be a person named trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Because that's what they were facing. And it was easy for them to think, you know what? We're hungry. We're starving. God, where are you? Have you left me? You know what? We're being put to the sword. They're threatening to chop off our heads. God, are you still with us? Have we been separated from your love? Is it because you don't love us anymore? Because we failed? Because we've done something wrong that we're going through this? The one who condemns stands to fight for you. He says, no. (laughs) In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
if you know his love in your heart, if you've professed your faith in Christ, then you're mine. You belong to me. And Paul says, have I gone through all the who, what, when, where, how, all those questions, then all of a sudden the why seems to fade into the background in light of the one who holds our lives past, present, future in his nail-pierced loving hands. There one of sisters of our congregation who's been going through some storms this past year. Uh, storms in family, storms at work, different situations, relatives, things happening. She was saying, uh, I don't know why I'm going through all these things. I may never know why. I may never know why I had to go through all this. But then she said, but that's okay. I'm okay with that. I'm okay to not need to know why because I know who. Defiant faith in the face of the storm. God holds my life. And because of that, I don't need all the answers. I have him and he's more than enough when I don't have enough. It's the first thing. You may not know why, but it ain't because he doesn't love you. The second thing that we see is that nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing <laughs> will separate you from the love of God. Okay, nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing. Not even death, not even illness, not even loss, not even betrayal will be able to separate you from the love of God. Here's what he says again in verse 37. No, in all these things, in them. So it means he's going to go through them. We're going to go through them. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. If you're a child of God, loved by God, says, I've got a name for you. I've got a new name for you. Sometimes it's fun when you get a new name from somebody, when you start dating somebody and they start calling you this pet name, or when you get into a relationship with somebody or someone starts getting to know you, they're like, you know what? I like you. You're kind of funny. I'm going to start calling you X, Y, Z. Pretty exciting. Last week we saw Peter, you of little faith. He actually called him little faith, a term of endearment. Here when he says you are more than conquerors, five words, you are more than conquerors, three words, more than conquerors. In Greek, one word, one word. Here's who you are as a child of God by virtue of you being loved by God. Here's your new name. Here's your new identity. You are Super conqueror. <laughs> That's your name. Can you look at someone and say, you are super conqueror? Can you say that? My goodness. Super conqueror. That's who you are. A conqueror is someone who takes their enemy and defeats them. A super conqueror, he takes them and he makes them his servants. He's saying, you're more than a conqueror. You're a super conqueror. Think about, think about, man, so our kids, Elijah especially, actually all of them, have gotten into like superheroes and Marvel comics, but they're too young uh, to watch the movies because there is suitable, inappropriate for children their age. But they've read, they're reading a book about the superheroes, and, and every maybe few days, Elijah will ask Olivia, Mommy, who are your five favorite superheroes? And then he'll go to Daddy. Daddy, who are your favorite five favorite superheroes? Do you want to know who my five favorite are? And he'll start naming his superheroes. And I read this and I said, man, 
I can tell Elijah that in the eyes of God, he can be a superhero far greater than even Superman. Think about this. Would you rather be a man or would you be a conqueror and then take that to the next level? You could be a, you are a super conqueror through him who loved you. Superman can leap tall buildings in a single bound, more powerful than a locomotive, able to catch bullets with his fingers. God's not saying you can do that, but he's saying, hey, you have more confidence in the midst of the difficulty than Superman because you have power infused not from some distant planet, but from God himself in you. When you stand in the midst of a trial, you stand in the midst of a storm, all of heaven backs you. You know that. Like, do, you, do, you, do you feel that, sense that, have that kind of spiritual swag in you? That, man, this is who I am. I'm a super conqueror through him who loved me. And then Paul goes on, he says, you know what? Verse 38, for I am convinced <laughs> that neither of these 10 things will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word separate, we saw this a few weeks back, the word separate means to violently separate you from somebody else. It's kind of the idea that Jesus had when he was talking to Peter, and he said, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, to violently grind you up against these sharp obstacles in order to separate you from me. But listen, I prayed for you. Same language here. He's interceding for us. I prayed for you, Simon. I prayed for you, Peter, that you would not fail. With Judas, who wasn't a child of God, he was sifted and he was violently separated from God. But to the child of God, Jesus says, nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Paul says of this, I'm absolutely, absolutely, well, look at what he says. Uh, For I am, 38, convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, present nor future nor powers, any powers, height nor depth, and then just as in case I missed anything, nor anything else in all creation will be able to dislodge you from the love of God in Christ. Paul doesn't say, guys, I just want to tell you that I'm pretty sure that nothing will separate you from the love of God. You know what? I'm, I'm 90% sure, guys. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, yeah, you know what? I'm, I'm not positive, but uh, I've got a hunch based on what people have told me that uh, you may lose your faith, you may lose your salvation, but I'm pretty sure you won't. He doesn't say that. He says, I am absolutely convinced. This is the perfect tense, meaning I was convinced yesterday. I am convinced today, and I will continue to be convinced tomorrow based on irrevocable evidence that I have seen. In other words, the evidence is clear. The the video says that he was the one who stole your car. The teeth marks which match your teeth tell me that you bit him. The evidence is clear. Paul's saying, I'm absolutely convinced. And nothing can shake my confidence that nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ. Now, something happens in the life of a person 
when you begin to get convinced of this reality? When was, a, when was a time you were convinced, if you're married, that nothing would separate you from the love of your spouse? When were you absolutely convinced? You'd be lying if you didn't say it was before you got married. Because up until that day, there was a chance that they could still say, you know what, never mind. You know what, let's give it some more time. The moment you were absolutely convinced of that was when they stood before you and God and witnesses and they said, I do. For me, I, I love that part at weddings where the vows are being exchanged. I always want to look at the groom as the, as the bride is making her vows, but more so I like watching the bride as the groom brings this huge anchor of shelter over her and says, as he looks into her eyes, I'll be committed to you no matter what. And I love watching the bride as the man of the hour is speaking into her life. Sometimes the bride is weeping because she had no idea that somebody could ever love her in this way. Sometimes she's laughing and she's giggling with glee because this is what she's been waiting for for all of her life, it seems. Others are so serious and stoic because they want to know that they're serious as they commit themselves because after these words are spoken, everything changes. And I love the declaration of intent. Where do you, man, take this woman to be your wife, to have and to hold for better or for worse in sickness and in health, rich or poor, till death do us part? And the man says, I do make this commitment. And all of a sudden, the girl, in all of her worries and all of her insecurities, is melt, these begin to melt away because there she's convinced that nothing that happens in life will separate me from the love of the man of my dreams. But I remember being at a couple, I can remember a couple grooms, <laughs> where as he said, I do, apparently it wasn't enough. Not for the bride, but for the bride's father. As he called out from the audience, I can't hear you or say it louder. And the groom shouts, I do! <laughs> and to the shock and surprise of his soon-to-be father-in-law, in that moment, he says, if, maybe if he would say that, then it's enough to convince me. Paul is saying, guys, you've got to understand that your God has taken these vows to you and he promised and he pledged his love to you in sickness and in health to be with you, that sickness will not take you from the love of God, nor will health, neither death nor life, nor riches nor poor, nothing will separate and God has shouted I do into your life at the cross of Calvary where never, ever, ever again do we need to doubt or question. But not only that, but he proves that to us through our lives. And Paul says, guys, I've been there. I've been there. Shall, wh wh what's going to separate us? Shall trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, dangerous? He's saying, I've been there. I've been there. I've been in all those things. And guess what? Nothing, none of those things separated me from the love of God. I am more convinced than ever. And I'm convinced that as each day goes on, I will become even more convinced, is what he's saying. 
because you are more than a conqueror through Christ. Here's what a conqueror does. They defeat the enemy. What more than a conqueror does? Is he takes the enemy and makes them his servants. That's what Piper said. At the cross, our older brother Jesus, not only the conqueror, but he is the champion of the super-conquering family. Looked like he had lost in the battle against all of these things. It seemed like, hey, the father turned his face away. Death, life, angels, demons, present, future, powers, height, depth, all of these things separated Jesus from the love of the father. Why? But what they didn't see in that moment, what they didn't see in that hour, was that Jesus, the super conqueror, was not only going to defeat all of these things, but he was going to make them servants to his will. So that through that, through the cross, through the resurrection, that you and I would know that nothing will ever separate us from the love of God. You see, the very things that Paul says, shall these things? Well, can I tell you? Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, the sword. All of these things fell on Jesus at the cross. Maybe not a sword, a spear. Nakedness to the point where it was just his loincloth. These were undertaken by Jesus in order that we, though we go through these things, would never be separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He talks about death as the first of ten because death is the ultimate separation, isn't it? When you die, you'll be separated from your bank account. You'll be separated from your family. You'll be separated from your loved ones. You'll be separated from your job. You'll be separated from your 401K. You'll be separated from your car. You'll be separated from your home. You'll be separated from everything. But the one thing it will not separate you from, you will not be separated from the love of Christ. In fact, in the worst moment that life could throw at you, it becomes the moment where you see the greatest expression of the love of God than you've ever seen before in your life. This morning, some come with heavy hearts. Um, our brother Charlie Lee is here for the first time in, in a long time. He'd been caring for his aging parents. And yesterday, uh, maybe the day before in the evening, uh, Charlie's father passed away and breathed his last. As Charlie was messaging he said, in the company, in the presence of my family, my father professed his faith in Jesus Christ and we're confident of where he's going. Death, how could death be a separator then? It's a, it's a doorway, it's a channel, it's a Harry Potter train that takes you into the presence of God in a way that he's never before experienced. If death, the ultimate separation in this life, is a mere servant in the purposes of God, then is there anything that you go through in life that could ever separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? We can be absolutely convinced, though we don't know why, we can know that our struggles are not because God doesn't love us. And you can be absolutely certain that there's nothing in this life, there's nothing in death, there's nothing high, nothing low, nothing in this world or in the world to come that could ever separate the people of God from the love of God that is shown to us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You are more than conquerors.
through him who loved you and through him who gave his life in order that you might be his. Believe this because this stuff is not only, it's, if it doesn't work in situations in life and death, if it doesn't work in the hardest moments of life, then this, is, this doesn't work at all. But this is robust and big enough to stand under. It's big enough for you to stand in the midst of cancer. It's big enough for you to stand in, in the midst of the last waning moments of your loved one's life. It's big enough for you to stand in through any hardship that you might go through in life. How would it change our lives if we believed these things to be true? Let's stand on it, child of God. You are more than conquerors through him who loved you in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Let's pray as you go through the storm. Drill deep down into the bedrock. Say, God, I believe that nothing in all this world will ever separate me from the love of God in Christ. Not even marital difficulties, not even divorce, not even financial loss, not even bankruptcy, not even the failure of a business, the loss of a relationship. Nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing. You can build your life upon this love. Let's pray. Pray for your life. Pray for those going through hardship. Mention Charlie family. We've mentioned Alicia Koo and her cancer. We've mentioned others going through hardship. Let's pray for them. Lord, may they know the who, the what, the where, the when, the how, and may that be big enough so that the whys begin to fade into the background as I stand and build my life on you. Let's pray for yourself. You can pray for others. If you want to put your hand on the back, the shoulder of the person next to you, Pray for them. Lord, may they know, not just know about, not just hear about, not just sing about, but know the love of God in this moment. Let's pray for each other. Pray for yourself. Let's pray for a minute, and then I'll pray for us. Father in heaven, it's a comfort to know that you know that we will go through hardships in life. It's a comfort to know that you said that. Not because we go through them, but because when we go through them, we know that they're not an accident. That you've never called 911. It's a comfort to know that you're with us. One stronger than a black belt in Taekwondo is with us, fighting our battles for us. It's great to know that you value us more than any valued possession in this life. It's good to know that the policeman is our friend. It's good to know that of all the things we don't know, these things we know, and it's big enough for us. We put our trust in you. We build our lives on you. We tether our lives, our hope to you. We anchor our lives in the bedrock foundation that will not be shaken of the love of God in Christ. Thank you so much for those going through hardship and trial, difficulty now. Oh God, would you be so near to them. Make this 
leap off the pages of Scripture and become reality in their lives. We thank you so much. We commit our hearts, our lives to you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.